Good morning, Outlook family. Sure, it's good to see everyone this morning. Before we jump into God's Word, I have something uh, that I get to do that I'm really excited about. I want to introduce you to our ministry intern uh, for the spring. Her name is Kayla Mosquera, and she is a senior. Yeah, give it up for Kayla. <laughs> That's great. That's great. Tamara and I are really enjoying getting to know Kayla, and she's just a delight, uh, and I'm looking forward to all of you getting to spend some time with her. She is a senior at Carolina Christian College. She's a ministry major. She is captain of the women's basketball team who won their division championship this year. So, yeah, respect for that. She will be hanging out with us primarily in our next-gen ministries and with our worship tech teams. And so, Kayla, if there's a word or two you want to say, go for it. Yeah, so just like I did this morning, I, I am still a, ner a little nervous, but um, it is a pleasure to be in this building with all of you guys. I'm very blessed, and uh, I'm just really looking forward to continue this journey with you guys through God. So Amen. thank you. Thank you for having me. Awesome. Yeah. Thanks, Kayla. I know that you all will just uh, give her the warmest of Outlook welcomes, and, uh, and all your hospitality will just pour her direction over the next few weeks as she gets to hang out with us. Kayla, before you go, though, um, I found this pic uh, online. It's your basketball team, you know, shot. And I got to tell you, I love this pic. As I've gotten to know you a little bit, and uh, she's staying with Tamara, and I, I, I see you have a, a cross there, and you, you, you play for Carolina Christian, so I follow Jesus, right? That becomes clear. But also, don't get in my way. Don't get in my way. And, and, and uh, I like that. I think we all can relate to that a little bit. And so it, that's just a, a great pick. Kayla, we're really looking forward to just hanging out with you over the next few weeks. Thanks for, for hanging out with us. All right. Thanks, Kayla. Let me uh, reiterate something you heard Kate talk about in the video, and that is these postcards you see on your seats here. Easter is, hard to believe, just three weeks away. And Easter is one of those moments in the year where if, when it comes to inviting someone to church, the, the likelihood of a yes goes up on a Sunday like Easter. Uh, people might think, I, I might go to church on Easter, especially if someone I know invited me. If I knew I had someone to sit with, someone to go with, someone to greet me or whatever, and I'd feel a little, little better about that decision. So use these to their max. We've got plenty of them. You can write a note on the back or whatever, uh, but... Uh, inviting friends, family members, neighbors, co-workers, you name it, uh, to church. Easter is a big, uh, big Sunday to make that happen. And for all of us outlookers, let me just remind you, our service times that morning are different than normal, right? Not only are there three services, but they're all at a different time than what you're used to. So 8, 9.30, and 11, make sure you kind of mark that down for yourself as well. So uh, take full advantage of those. Now, we're continuing our sermon series this morning called When Jesus Prays. We're looking at some of the prayers Jesus prayed. We're learning what they teach us about prayer, about Jesus, and about ourselves. And so before we go any farther, I'd love to pray. So let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we're about to learn here as we listen in on Jesus and one of his prayers. Father, I ask that you would take this word and plant it deeply in all our hearts. Holy Spirit, be our teacher today. And uh, may we all walk out of here with something from you. Um, and that's what we're here to do. We're here to hear from you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Jesus prayed for us. Jesus prayed 
for you and for me. And Jesus hasn't stopped praying for us. The Scriptures teach us this. It's kind of a wild thought. Not only are we going to focus on the fact that Jesus prayed at one point and throughout His ministry, uh, and we're going to look at one of those prayers, but Jesus is still praying for us. The Scriptures teach us this. Here's just a quick little survey of that. In Romans chapter 8, we read, Who then is the one who condemns? Talking about that voice that condemns you and me, tells us we're unlovable or far from God and unable to be loved by God. The answer, of course, there is no one. That there really is no voice that ultimately can condemn us. Why? Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life, that's Easter, right? We're about there. Is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. So in this passage, we immediately see the idea that Jesus died, risen, and ascended to the Father is talking to God about you and me. He sees our lives, he cares about our lives, and he's praying for us. The Apostle John wrote in one of his letters, My dear children, I'm writing this to you so that you won't sin. In other words, that's, that's his desire for them. It's a very tender letter if you ever read it. And he's saying, man, sin kills you. Sin, sin is a cancer. I, I'm, I'm writing that you'll, you'll grow out of that and, and, and sin less and less in your life just because it's, it, it wrecks your life. He says, I'm writing that, that you won't do that. But if anyone does, and we all still do, we have an advocate who pleads our case before the Father. He is Jesus Christ, the one who is truly righteous. So again, the picture is painted that Jesus is talking to God about us. And in fact, he's saying, I have died for them and I have risen again. They've put their faith in me and I stand before you on their behalf. I plead their case, have a relationship with them because they've placed faith in me. And that's what Jesus is for us, a mediator. Is one, one, uh, the way Paul put it in one letter to a guy named Timothy, that Christ is our mediator, stands between us and the Father and advocates on our behalf. The writer of Hebrews, third biblical author we're quoting here, uh, paints the same type of picture. Therefore he, speaking of Christ, is able once and forever, to save those who come to God through Him, He lives forever to intercede with God on their behalf. That tells me that even today, even right now, Jesus sees my life and yours, knows all the details, and cares. And before God the Father represents us, intercedes for us, prays for us. Even now, as we His disciples navigate life, in this world. I want to share a quote that I've always really appreciated from a guy named Robert Murray McShane. He was a uh, Scottish preacher, a pastor, a poet, a prolific writer. He was also a man of deep piety and prayer who made a big impact in his area of the world during his short 29-year life. And at one point he said this, if I could hear Christ praying for me in the next room, I would not fear a million enemies. Yet distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. The idea that Jesus does see, know, and care about my life and is praying for me, it would be, I would probably break down weeping if I could hear Jesus in the next room or, or near me praying for Rob McCord by name on my behalf. That would crush me. That would, that would just be more than I could probably take. Yet He is, right? And, if, and even though... 
I might feel there's a distance. I can't quite hear Him with my earthly ears. Let my soul be tuned to the fact that Jesus cares for me and for you. Amen? And that He does pray for us. Distance makes no difference. He is praying for me. And what if, this is a question worth contemplating, what if I ask Jesus, what are you praying for me? What are you praying that would be true for me? Now, some insight into this can be found in what he prayed for his disciples in John 17. We started looking at this prayer last Sunday. It's the longest recorded prayer of Jesus. He is preparing for the cross, and he's preparing his disciples for what's about to happen. The cross, the resurrection, and his ascension. And this prayer begins to reflect that. So like we did last week, let's move through a portion of this prayer thought by thought. We're in John 17, now in verse 8. Jesus is praying to God the Father, and he says, I have passed on to them, his disciples, the message you gave me. They accepted it, and know that I came from you, and they believe you sent me. So uh, he's just making it clear here, this is who I'm praying for right now. He's transitioning in the prayer. He turns to his disciples, those who've said yes to him. I'm praying for them. That they, would, they have received, they've accepted, they believe this message. That's who I'm praying for. And this is who we get to be. We are people who have simply received and accepted and believed the message of Jesus. We didn't come up with it, right? We didn't deserve it, but we heard it. We accepted it. We believed it. We decided, this is who I want to be, a follower of this Jesus, the Son of God. And so now, even if this whole thing is kind of new to you, if you're here with us right now, whether online or here in the room, you now are someone to whom this message is being passed on to. You're in it. And now you have a decision to make. What will I do with this message? Every single one of us, once we hear the message, we will respond one way or another. We'll ignore it. Maybe we'll put it off. Maybe we'll count ourselves out. There's all kinds of ways to respond, but we all will. Jesus is saying, I'm praying now for those who have received it, who've accepted it, who believe it. That can be you today. But just know this, no matter what else we say for the rest of this message, for, just know this, we're all responding to that message one way or another. I'm glad you're hearing it. I'm going to be praying you'll respond with a yes. Amen? What will you do with this message. We're going to spend the rest of our time now in the portion of Jesus' prayer found in verses 14 through 19. John 17, 14 through 19. Jesus' prayer continues. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they don't belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. What's going on here? Now, hate might sound kind of extreme to us. We're uh, not sure if hate is what you and I experience on any given day, but we can resonate with some of the vibe of what's happening here because when you say yes to Jesus, you find yourself going against the grain of the world of society, and that friction can cause some heat, right? Uh, and it's a, but it was a very real thing, this hatred to the disciples, and would be for years to come, and it's very real for disciples of Jesus all around the world even today. 
Now, we mentioned last week this prayer comes kind of near the end of a few chapters of Jesus sharing with His disciples, starting in John 13. It's where the Last Supper happens. He washes His disciples' feet. It's a long discourse of Jesus kind of downloading to his, to his disciples, here's what's happening, and here are the things I kind of want to impart to you before what He knows is going to be the cross. And He says just a little bit earlier before this prayer, He says to the disciples, if the world hates you, keep in mind, it hated me first. He says, if you belong to the world, it would love you as its own, but you don't belong to the world. So He's praying about it now, but He's already mentioned it, warned them about it earlier. He says, that's why the world's going to hate you. Remember, a servant is not greater than their master. So if they persecuted me, he said, they're going to persecute you too. So be ready. They'll treat you this way, he says, because of my name, for they don't know the one who sent me. And this is a key thought here. The idea is we live in a world, and so did they, who does not know or acknowledge God. So when Jesus says we no longer belong to the world, what does he mean? And let's unpack that a little bit. We've done this before, but anytime we run squarely into the concept of the world as the scriptures describe it, we ought to make sure we know exactly what we're talking about here. So let's, let me give that a shot. The world, biblically speaking, is our surrounding culture and society attempting life without God. Okay? And now it's important for us to recognize this was any and all of us. And all of us can go through times in our lives in which we kind of are attempting life without God, ignoring God, setting God aside. But in general, when we talk about the world, we're talking about all of culture and society that's trying to make sense of the world and make decisions and do things, and they're leaving God out of the equation. And when that happens, a lot of foolishness can happen, right? I mean, God is the source of all wisdom. When I, on any given day, choose to ignore him, I'll start doing stupid stuff. And that's certainly then true across societies, governments, cultures. That's the world. The world trying to figure it out without the one who has the answers. So the world is attempting to do life without God. What's a few other things that are true about the world? Uh, The world can often be well-intentioned, but it is always incomplete in what it knows and can do. What do I mean by that? What I mean is, it's not like the whole world is all evil all the time, although there is plenty of evil in the world and plenty of darkness and plenty of grief and plenty of injustice and plenty of things that need corrected. Uh, People in the world often are just trying to figure life out. And their intentions might even be not half bad, but they're leaving out the one who will actually help them learn what it is they're looking for. So incompleteness is a key. In fact, what I would say is in the way the Bible describes the world is fallen or broken. Or another way to put it, one I like, is malfunctioning, right? The world is trying to operate while ignoring the one who designed and made it. So it's going to malfunction. It's going to work poorly, and it's going to do a lot of harm to people, and we're going to do a lot of harm to ourselves and each other when we're doing life without God. So, by its very nature, the world is ignorant of God's truth, choosing to ignore it. It's rebellious of His ways and unable to tap His power. So the world might talk about doing a lot of good or trying to aspire to high human ideals, but it's pretty bankrupt when it comes to actually cashing that check. Can't really do it without God. 
And then for you and for me, a great definition of the world as we are navigating our lives following Jesus is the world and its influences really can be defined as whatever makes temptation look good and sin seem normal. As I'm trying to make decisions throughout my life, the world is those influences that come to me that make me begin to consider something God has said is worth saying no to. But now I'm going to start to think about it. Maybe I'll say yes to it. If, that, if the world turns my no into a maybe, then I'm on my way to a yes. That is the influence of the world, whatever that might look like for any one of us individually. And so it's this non-conforming to the world that is a part of what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. His prayer goes on to say to the Father, I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They, and then he reiterates something he's already said. They don't belong to the world any more than I do. So we don't fit in here, but Jesus is not asking that the Father would somehow pluck us out of the world and all of its pressures or persecutions. He's saying, I, I need them in this world, but I also, Father, am praying that you'll keep them safe. Keep them from conforming to the world. Pour some concrete into their souls that they'll stay strong and not be crushed into the mold of the world. Which is simply people trying to do life without Him. Now the way that happens is the Holy Spirit, right? Jesus goes to the cross, conquers death, and then promises, uh, pours out, as He promised, His Spirit into His people. We now live in the age of the Holy Spirit. We get to have God not only living with us, but living in us. Jesus says as much, just again, a little bit before this prayer. He promises His followers will receive, as He calls it, the Spirit of Truth. And that Spirit of Truth, He says, will help you and be with you. He goes on, the world cannot accept Him because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. But you know Him, for He lives with you and will be in you. That's in John 14. He will be in you. So, you and me, as we say yes to Jesus, not by any virtue of our own, not because we've got it all figured out or, or we're especially uh, you know, morally strong compared to anyone else, only because we've said yes to Jesus and we are now receiving this truth in His Spirit. We are no longer lured and lowered by the lies of the world. The pressure to conform is now outweighed. Whatever pressure is coming at us to cave and, and conform to the world, that pressure is now outweighed by our desire to be transformed. Paul so powerfully wrote about this in Romans chapter 12. He says, don't conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The pattern of this world, predictable, lame, uh, uh, empty, just a pattern. It's just an absolute uh, boring rote way that this money and greed, and sex, and power, and on and on. Just whatever it is. It's just a pattern of the world. It's been going on forever. Don't conform to that pattern of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, you might, if you're a Christian here, you've been following Christ for a, few, for a few years, you might say, Rob, I know that verse. I've heard that a hundred times. Good. Here's 101. All right? I hope this rings in our ears and is planted deeply in our hearts that we can't help but have it memorized and that it just becomes one of the things we think about. Don't conform to the pattern of the world, but be transformed. Because belonging, if we're honest, let's just be honest, belonging to the world is tempting. 
It is. All that, all, that, all that it promises or the comfort of conformity, all of that can be tempting. But Jesus says we don't. We just don't. We no longer belong to the world. We belong to Him. And we shouldn't try or spend any energy belonging to the world anymore. That fitting in doesn't really offer anything that we think it might promise. And so we shouldn't try to conform our thoughts our priorities, our self-image, and what informs that self-image, to anything that the world has to say. And this leads us to Jesus' next thought. Make them holy, he prays, by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Oh Man, what a powerful prayer to think the Son of God is now praying to God the Father and asking us, uh, asking that we, his, his followers, are taught his word. He's saying, man, they need this word. It's true, and it's what's going to be the thing that makes them holy. Now, that word holy might seem like, oh, I don't know if I'm going to ever be holy. What's that all about? And sometimes we think holy, we might think holier than thou and self-righteous and kind of putting yourself above someone else. And that's not what this is, is about. The idea of being made holy, or sometimes the verb is sanctified, Right? There some, some versions of the Scripture will say, sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. That simply means to be set apart and dedicated to God. When we say yes to Jesus, we are now in a category of people, not plucked out of the world, but protected in this world and dedicated to, we've given our lives to God. And, then, and that's a, just another word for holy. And how does this happen? Jesus says it. He says God's true word is essential. In that process, teach them your word, he prayed. And so you and I and every other human being on the planet are going through our lives asking one way or another, what is truth? What is real? What is worthwhile and meaningful and good? And we're all asking this one way or another, and we're all trying on answers. In fact, you can just sit back and watch. That's what's happening in the world all the time. People trying to figure out the answer to the question, what is truth, and, and attempting every answer that they can come up with and seeing, will this work? And then seeing it won't, and then trying another. You and me, we're simply people who figured out where the answer lies. We didn't come up with the answer. We discovered it. It was given to us. It was passed on to us. So the open secret of life in Jesus is that disciples simply don't settle for substitutes. That's really what it comes down to. Everyone's looking for meaning. Everyone's looking for truth. Everyone's looking for goodness and love. We've just simply found the source. And now we've given our whole lives to enjoying and absorbing all that comes from that source who is God in Christ. The life Jesus gives always eclipses anything the world promises. So we've just discovered, hey, why would I conform to counterfeits when I can be transformed by the creator of the real thing? The allure of the world with its token riches and pleasures, that allure is persistent. It's vying every day for our attention and our affection. But Jesus asks at one point in Matthew 16, what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? He follows up, is anything worth more than your soul? The answers, of course, are nothing and no. Even our most basic needs, he at one point says, shouldn't consume our thoughts. He says, the pagan world is running after all kinds of stuff. What are we going to wear? What are we going to eat? What's, what's life all about? Your heavenly Father knows what you need, he says. So we choose not to chase what the world chases. Why do we do that? Simple. We know the truth. The truth of who we are and what really matters. 
And so what are we saying here? We're saying that as God's people, a love of God's true and good word, man, that can define us, even as as us, outlookers, a local church, that we could be people who are just loving God's word. You mean I get to get in a small group and circle up with other believers in Jesus and open God's word and relish it and talk about it and learn it and repeat it and encourage each other with it and make it our rule of life, our way of life. I can study it. I can internalize it. I get to enjoy it. Jesus says that sounds pretty, that, that, that's very important. It sounds important when I hear him say it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. So we are a people set apart and dedicated to God. That's what sanctifying holy ultimately mean. And God, in the beauty of his truth, become the aim of our lives. That's who we are. We're captured by it. Now all of this leads to this thought that Jesus shares. Just as you sent me into the world. Check this out. Just as you sent me into the world, he says to the Father. I am sending them into the world. And I'll say, what? Right? I mean, that's, that's the moment where I'm like, hey, I was kind of tracking with you up till now, Jesus, but I, I am not qualified to be sent into the world the way you were sent into the world. So what do you mean? And we see this throughout everything Jesus teaches. Jesus When we say yes to Him, He is sending us, remember, not not plucking us out of the world, but keeping us in the world and sending it as a light into dark places. His disciples sent on a mission to share His message, to simply be ourselves. People who've discovered that we're loved by God and that you can be loved by God too. That God designed me for a purpose and I'm discovering that purpose. You were designed for a purpose as well. He knows all about you and you can discover that as well. It is the message of God's grace made available to all humankind. It's the story of who Jesus is, what He's done, and how He keeps working in our lives. Before this prayer, He said to the disciples that the Holy Spirit would come, the Spirit of truth, and that He would testify. That Spirit would testify about Jesus. And then He said, and you must also testify. Jesus consistently makes this clear. His disciples are sent. They are empowered witnesses who show and tell the good news of his reality. In Matthew 10, he warns them, I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore, be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. Be on your guard. In other words, the world is going to be rough, but I'm with you. Be shrewd, be thoughtful, but also keep your ethics strong and tall. In fact, he goes on in this passage to warn them, you're going to be handed over to local councils and synagogues. In fact, you're you're going to be brought before governors and kings, he says, as witnesses. But when they arrest you, he says, not if. (laughs) When they arrest you, he says to these original disciples, maybe we haven't just experienced that just yet in our current day and time. But when they arrest you, he warned them, don't worry about what to say. It'll be the Holy Spirit speaking through you. This is the kind of instruction that he needed to give them. I want to end with a story that kind of illustrates what we're talking about and hopefully brings together some of the things that we've heard in this prayer. There was a guy, his name was Pliny, P-L-I-N-Y, Pliny. Uh, Sometimes he's called Pliny the Younger because there was a Pliny the Older. He was a civil servant who served as governor of Bithynia in modern Turkey. And he served for two or three years from from 111 to 113 A.D. So about 80 years after we hear Jesus pray this prayer, he goes to the cross, 
Um, this, is, this is where we are in history. And he's governor of this region of the Roman Empire, and he meets Christians for the first time, and he's not sure how they should be dealt with. In fact, the practice, and he even had some directives from the emperor, was to harass and arrest these Christians in his, in his region. But he, he's not so sure about this, so he writes a letter to the emperor Trajan, and he reports what he's done so far, and he's asking for guidance. So check this out, because it says a lot to us about what was happening among our forebears, early Christians, just about 80 years after Jesus lived on earth. And so this is his letter to the emperor. The sum and substance of their fault or error, speaking of the Christians, had been that they were accustomed to meet on a fixed day before dawn and sing responsively a hymn to Christ as to a God and to bind themselves by oath, not to do some crime, but not to commit fraud, theft, or adultery, not to falsify their trust, or, nor to refuse to return a trust when called upon to do so. So in other words, he's saying, the only thing I can find out about these folks is uh, they, they sing to Christ as if Christ were a God once a week. They get together in the morning, early, and they uh, commit themselves to keeping their promises and being ethical people. And then he goes, and I love this part, when this was over, it was their custom to depart and then to assemble again to partake of ordinary and innocent food. So Christians have liked to get together to eat since the very beginning. Okay, let's just be clear about that. Now, they were in trouble for not worshiping Caesar. That was the whole idea. Caesar was de declared to be a god, and every Roman citizen was to, to offer worship um, and tribute to Caesar as a god. And Christians would refuse to do that. But uh, Pliny is confused because in, it's their honesty, it's their generosity, it's their fidelity that's making arresting them hard for him to swallow. He, so he writes this letter to basically, are you sure we got the right people here? And then he goes on to say, besides, there are so many of them. The letter goes on to say this, The matter seemed to, me warrant to, seemed to me to warrant consulting you, especially because of the number involved. For many persons of every age, every rank, and of both sexes are and will be endangered. For the contagion of this superstition, which is how they would have seen our faith, right, has spread not only to the cities, but also to the villages and farms. So think about it. Jesus is praying a prayer. He's got 12 immediate followers. He's got 70-some other folks that he has sent out at one time or another. He's got a small band of followers when Jesus prays this prayer. Less than three generations since that time, the word of this, quote, superstition, as the Romans would have seen it, had spread like a virus. And Pliny is saying, hey, it's everywhere. Do you know how many people I'm going to have to round up if I really take this order seriously, our faith was spreading a few more generations later and the emperor himself would be a Christian. Friends, let's be contagious again. Amen? Let's be people who are simply sent into this world. We're not of it, but we're sent into it. A people who love God's truth and who love all people. A people who are defined by the fact that this message has been passed on to them to us. And we've said yes to it. That is who Jesus is praying for. That is who we are. We illustrate that every week when we take the bread and the cup. If you grabbed one on the way in, I'd invite you to pick, pick it up. There's one more line in th this section of Jesus' prayer 
This is the very next thought that he says after what we've been looking at. He says in his prayer, and I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. We're the recipients of that sacrifice and the effect of that sacrifice. We honor and celebrate that sacrifice every week when we do what he asked us to do. We take bread and we, we remember that it represents his body given for us. Let's take and eat together. And when we take the cup, we are reminded so we'll never forget that the Holy Son of God was a sacrifice for us. He died the death that only, that he was the only one who never deserved to die. Sin yields death. He never sinned. He didn't deserve to die. He died anyway. Died the death that we deserve. A holy sacrifice for us. We honor and celebrate that every week as we take the cup and remember his blood shed for us. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for the sacrifice you made, for the prayers you prayed. Lord, help us to move through our day, the rest of today, this week ahead of us. By your Spirit, give us the supernatural ability to be reminded that you are praying for us. Our eardrums might not be able to pick it up as if you were in the next room, but Lord, let our hearts pick it up. Let our hearts sense just how much you know and care about us. And be assured that because that's true, we need not fear a million enemies. We can, with boldness and with love and full of grace, be fully ourselves in this world. That we can shine light in places that seem dark. We can share truth to those who, like we used to, have bought some lies. Lord, help us to be those people. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.